Hello and welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. In just a moment, we're going to jump into this week's message. But before we do, I want to encourage you to connect with us online. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook, and you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and this very podcast. We want to stay connected. So another great way to do that is be our guest on a Sunday. I'd love to invite you to be here. If you're local, come out. We want to meet you, get to know you, worship with you. We'd really, really enjoy your company. And without further ado, let's jump into this week's message. If I haven't met you, my name's Toby, I'm one of the pastors around here, and I get the honor today to uh, introduce Ellen, and before I bring her up, I want to tell a little bit about her. We were married 26 years ago, and yes, that's a long time, And, and when we committed ourselves to each other, we did it with the understanding that we were also committing ourselves to the ministry of the gospel. We have devoted ourselves to the ministry of the gospel. We've worked in churches. We've volunteered in churches. We have baptized people in swimming pools, hot tubs, lakes, streams, baptistry tanks. We have taught Bible studies in kitchen living rooms and loved on people in hospitals and prisons for the last 26 years. And when Ellen speaks... She will speak to your heart. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't do chit-chat really well. She'll just jump right in. Ellen, if you'll come on up, I do want to tell one story. We, we were... No chit-chat. We were involved in a youth group that had about 500 people, 500 kids. And it was the Halloween, I mean, harvest party... Um, service, and they asked Ellen to speak about uh, the move of the Holy Spirit. So Ellen is speaking, and um, she is bringing the house down. The The Spirit's moving in the room, and a lot of people had never experienced the Spirit, and they had the same reaction that a lot of you do when you feel the Spirit move on you. I've seen your faces. And this boy that I had kind of taken under my wing, I'm, he and I are sitting in the very back row, and he's here next to me, and he's 10, 12 years old, and he is feeling this, and he's watching Ellen's, <laughs> Ellen speak, and he's feeling God move, and his eyes are big, and he turns to me, and he says, Brother Toby, do she scare you sometimes? <laughs> I said, yeah, buddy, she do. <laughs> she do scare me sometimes. Have at it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I love you, baby. Well, I'm going to try not to scare anybody today. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. If you're new to Celebration, welcome. This is a great place to be. Do I have something weird happening with my sound? Okay. Maybe just my ear is weird. Um, if I am not the pastor. Just so you know that, just in case you're curious. If you're new here, you need to come back next week. The pastor and his wife are out of town, and they would love to meet you. They're amazing people. You will love them. So I want you to make sure you come back. Stay here for the rest of the service, but definitely come back next week so that you can get to know them a little bit. 
Um, so next week we're doing Legacy Sunday, and we are going to be like giving like into our future and, and giving as a legacy offering. But today we're going to talk about legacy kind of from a different perspective. Like, what does it look like, look like to live a life of legacy? And so today I want to talk to you about living a life that outlives you. And the first thing is I want you to recognize that biblically, when we look at our scriptures, it's really important to note that God approaches everything generationally. He's not like us. We think of things as circumstantially. This is what's going on in my life. This is what happened with me and my family. This is my needs. God views things generationally. He's a big picture God. And this is really important to remember because when we're reading scriptures, quite often if we don't understand that God's in it for the long haul, that we will misunderstand things and we'll miss things that are really important to us because most of the time what's going on in your life What's happening in your world and your circumstances, it's not just about you. It probably has more to do with those who are coming behind you. And so let's keep that in mind as we begin to talk today. And we're going to begin talking about a young man who, in, in the Bible, he's, he's a great character when we look at legacy. Is he's a little boy named David. Um, he, he, scriptures um, tell us his story. Archaeologists have found evidence that shows he lived probably about 1000 B.C., he was the youngest in a family of seven, some scholars say eight, um, brothers. He's the youngest of a band of brothers. So, you know, he got picked on a lot. He got messed with a lot. And this poor guy, he got the brunt end of the, the, the jokes. He, got, he was the runt. He got the, the worst jobs. And he was a shepherd. Um, he would be working out way out in the pastures, way out. And he um, did all the things that a shepherd would do. So he was making sure the sheep were protected, that they had place to graze, that they had water, they were being cared for. Um, and it, it seems like a really nice bucolic little life, but the truth is it was pretty dangerous. There are places in Scripture where he talks about how he had to fight a lion in one case to defend his sheep. Another time he fought a bear. So this wasn't just quite an easy job, but it was the job that he was assigned as a 12-year-old. He was pretty much a nobody. But in the middle of his nobody life, on the other side of the nation was a man by the name of King Saul. And King Saul was doing some things and making some choices that were not great. And so God decided he needed to place another king to watch out for the nation. And so God contacted Samuel, who was a prophet, and said, Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem. There's a guy by the name of Jesse. He has a bunch of brothers, a bunch of sons. Gather the sons, and as you go through them, I will tell you who I want you to anoint as the next king of Israel. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem. He goes to Jesse's house. He says, Jesse, bring in all your boys. And Jesse's like, great, one of my kids is going to be king. This is amazing, right? So Jesse lines up all the boys. And as Samuel is going down the line, he's like, is this the one? And God says, no. Is, is this the one? No. God says, no. So is this the one? No. And God tells Samuel, Samuel, I'm looking for something specific. I'm not looking for the one that you think has the most wisdom or is the biggest, tallest guy or the one who's the most accomplished. I'm not looking for the oldest I'm looking for not what you see on the outside. I'm looking for the heart. And God told Samuel, I'm looking for someone who's going to have a heart after me. So Samuel goes to the line. Finally, he says to Jesse, like, are these, this is all you got? Like, you don't, you don't have any more kids? Like, I would be like, that's plenty of kids. But <laughs> Jesse says, you know, actually, we have one more, but it's, it's not a big deal. He's, just, he's a little kid. He's way out there working on the sheep. He's just, it, it's no big deal. And Samuel says, no, it actually, I think it might actually be a big deal. Why don't you go get him? I'm not leaving until I look at your last son. As a matter of fact, we're not even going to sit down until we see him. 
So they go and get David, and he brings him in. I'm sure David thought it was just snack break. He had no idea what was going on. And David walks in, and Samuel lays eyes on him. And when he does, in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord tells Samuel, this is the one. And it says, the Lord told him, rise and anoint him. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. I want you to pray with me. Lord, I thank you for everyone that has come into this room today. And Lord, I know that if we're coming here today, it's certainly not because we were hoping for coffee, because there was no coffee. But God, we come here because we want something from you for our life and for the lives of those who come after us. So God, I pray that whatever we bring into this place, that you will begin to work on our hearts You'll begin to bring things to our minds that you want us to begin to deal with, some things you want us to turn over to you. So God, as I speak, I pray that you will speak individually to each heart and each mind. I pray that you anoint my words, anoint my mind so I can think clearly and that I can only speak what you say. And if I step out of line, you shut me down. I thank you for your goodness and I thank you for the promise of your grace. Amen. Has anybody ever felt like you just wanted to be noticed? Just wanted to be seen? Like you're, you just knew that somebody was looking for you? Like somebody. Somebody's looking for what you, you bring, what you offer. That was always me as a kid. Like I always wanted to be like a star. Like I just wanted to be, and I wasn't in the star family. I wasn't at all. But I wanted something, and so I was like in, in high school, and, and was junior high and high school, and even in college, I did theater a lot because I just loved acting. I loved like, like just being able to express myself in different ways and to do things. And I always knew at some point there would be like a casting director in the audience. There would be like somebody who would just happen to be passing by because they're going to visit their grandparents, and all of a sudden, here you are, the one we've been looking for our whole lives, and it never, ever happened for me. So I always felt like I was just like, oh, this as nobody overlooked and even though I tried hard it was just like a wah-wah my whole life so then later in my adult years I was going to this church and it was a, this big massive church and for Easter they had this play that they would do kind of like an Easter pageant kind of thing I guess they call it it's called Messiah and um, it, there was a cast of 500 people in this cast it was a huge thing and so I was a part of that and then eventually after a couple of years I ended up becoming a director for it and it was this massive production, and we had, um, I think every year we would do about 25 performances of about 3,000 people apiece. People flew in from all the world. Bill Clinton came twice as president, so we had like Air Force One and all the, the things with that, when it regards to your politics. It was super cool. My husband got to drive in the motorcade, which was amazing and fairly scary. Um, but it was really, really cool. And it, so at some point, we got a phone call that ABC News had found out about us, and they wanted to come interview us, Peter Jennings. And back in the day, Peter Jennings was pretty cool. So Peter Jennings comes, and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. We get to talk with Peter Jennings. We get to be interviewed. And so they were going to film one of the performances. Well, the night of the performance, they were going to be there. Um, one of our actors, something had happened, and they couldn't do their part. And so I was like, I'll just jump in. It was a small part. It was pretty significant, but it was a small part. I could do it. Um, yeah, I'll jump in. And then I thought, oh. This is my chance. 
because they're bringing the cameras. ABC News is coming, and they are going to document me, and this is going to be amazing, right? Right? So the part that I played was there's a story in the Bible about a woman who's crying so much that she gets her Jesus' feet all wet, and she washes his feet with her tears, and then she wipes his feet with her hair. So that's the part I was playing. So I was so excited realizing, this is the moment that I've been waiting for, and the moment clearly everyone else has been waiting for. They just didn't know it, and here I am. And so... I get ready, and I'm doing my part, and I, can, I do a seriously good cry face, and I can, I can command a cry in theater, like, boom. And so I pulled it on. I was like, I'm, I'm going to do this. And so as I'm doing this, the lights are really bright, and you can only see about four feet from the stage. And I looked over here, and right there, I could tell that the guy with the ABC News like, close-up camera was right there. Perfect. And so I just kind of turned my head just so the light would hit it just right. <laughs> I did my face with the little tears just right. And then suddenly my body played this prank on me. And it was like something pulled the lever on my nostrils and snot just billowed out of my face. Down on my, it was like Niagara Falls right in the ABC News camera. I was mortified. And I didn't get a call. Still I'm waiting for that call. I kind of feel like that was, might have been David a little bit. I mean, David has been this guy. He's been waiting in the back lot the whole time. He's the littlest of the brothers. Nothing happens for him. And finally, somebody recognizes him. Samuel comes and says, hey, you're the one we've been looking for. And he's super excited. But the truth is, just because he was anointed didn't mean he got to become king. Certainly not then. He was 12 years old. So he's still at his dad's place. He's still doing his chores for years. He's still doing his chores. And his brothers were off doing great and crazy things, but he's just doing his things. Even though he knows there's something great inside of him that people may have missed. And so slowly, David um, begins to like, build up his character, build up his abilities. And then we get to this scene in 1 Samuel 17, which is a legendary showdown. The Israelites are going to war with the Philistines. And they're on one side of a hill, and the Philistines are on another side of a hill. And in the center, in the valley, the Philistines have presented this giant by the name of Goliath. And Goliath has said, I'll make you guys a deal. You bring out your best warrior. He can fight me, and whoever wins, the battle goes to that team. Right? Sounds like a great plan, except nobody wants to fight Goliath. Well, David doesn't have a clue that this is going on. He's at home doing his chores. And all of a sudden, David's dad says, hey, I tell you what, why don't you go bring lunch to your brothers? You're the snack guy. Like, show up and bring, bring lunch to your brothers on the field. So he goes out there. When David shows up, he looks at the camps on the sides, and he hears Goliath. And Goliath is, like, seriously trash-talking. Goliath is, like, calling them names and, and, like, tearing down the Israelites and tearing down their God and tearing down their character and their manhood. And David's like, what in the world? Nobody's going to stand up to this guy? Nobody has anything to say? Like, don't you want to, like, go and fight this guy? And everybody's like, uh, I don't think so. I'm not interested in that. No, we're not going to do that. But David says, I want, uh, like, somebody, somebody's got to stand up. Well, eventually, King Saul finds out that there's some kid here in the troops that is willing to stand up to Saul. So he calls him to come talk to him, and David somehow or another convinces Saul, like, I can take this guy. I know I'm young. I've never fought before in my life, except for a lion and a bear, but I think I can take him. So Saul's like, well, we need some sucker to try, right? So Saul says, I tell you what, you can take my sword and my shield, and you can go out there and, and give it a go. David tries them on. They don't fit. David takes them off. He says, it's okay. I don't even know how to use them anyway. So I'm just going to use what I know. I'm going to use what I have. I'm going to use what's familiar to me. So he gets a slingshot that he uses to protect the sheep. And he sees there's a creek, and he goes down, and he gets five smooth stones. And he goes up there, and he begins to say some things to the giant. 
And it's really interesting in this passage. In 1745, David says to the giant, You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom, I, whom you have defied. And this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, but the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you all into our hands. Well, Goliath didn't like that. So Goliath steps forward to come after David. David picks up his sling. Boom, he hits him right in the forehead. Goliath goes down. End game. Well, Saul realizes this is not an ordinary kid. Saul realizes, <coughs> excuse me, Saul realizes this guy is a warrior. Can I have my water? Sorry about that. Saul realizes this is a warrior. And so for this next seven years, thank you, baby. David begins fighting for Saul. <coughs> Get that in the microphone. Excuse me. Every time Saul would send David on a mission, David would be successful. David rose in ranks. And David became this amazing hero. So much so that the people begin to say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul began to get really, really jealous. For seven years, he, after he'd been serving Saul, Saul suddenly turned on him, and Saul began to hunt David. For seven more years, Saul began to hunt him in the caves, in the wildness, and David would hide with his people. And he would still try to do good and try to do things, but he knew that Saul was coming after him, and Saul tried to assassinate him multiple times and would fail. That was his lot. Seven years of service and seven years of being hunted. And finally, King Saul is killed. His son becomes the king for a very brief time before he gets murdered. And then David is risen to the rank and crowned as the third king of Israel at the age of 30. Third king of Israel. It took him 18 years from the time he was anointed to the time that he actually took the position. And over the next 40 years... He reunited the kingdom. He took the fortress of Zion, which later became called the city of David. He conquered Jerusalem. He returned the Ark of the Covenant, and he built a temple. He, he planned out a temple for God. He won numerous battles. He made Israel a formidable nation. He expanded its territory and its military might, and all the time he continually pointed people towards God for 40 years when we look at the scriptures, we see all these amazing things that he did. But the scriptures are also very honest. They share the other side of David. And it wasn't a great side. When we look at the scriptures, we see that even though he did great things and he had the anointing of God in his life, David was a liar. Deception was a part of his pattern. He would do things to either hide his own failures or his weakness or to manipulate people to get what he needed. He, had re he wrestled with pride. He was a guy who, even though he was great and he had God's hand on his life, he was very human. He was very real. One of the most classic things that we see in Scripture is this horrible story 
David is later in his, in his life. He is in his, his home, his castle, I suppose it would be. Um, and he's looking out. His army is gone off in the field. They're at war. And he looks out and he sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And she's beautiful. And he decides, I want her. So he goes and he calls, go get that woman and bring her to me. And the scripture says that he find, finds out that she's married. Her husband is a guy named Uriah. And Uriah is one of his best warriors out on the battlefield. And David is taking his wife while he's gone. And let's be really clear here. It's, a very, li- it's very likely this is a non-consensual relationship. You can't say no to the king. At the very least, it's an abuse of power. And she gets pregnant. So David's like, I have to fix this pretty quickly. And so David calls and says, hey, bring Uriah here. I'm going to give him a free paid leave. He can hang out with his wife for a while. He's trying to cover up his sin. But Uriah is a man of integrity. So Uriah says, no, my guys are out there fighting. I'm staying with my people. And so Uriah says, I'm staying on the field. And David says, I have to do something else. So to cover his sin, he commits an even greater sin. And Uriah does not know it, but David is plotting for his death. So David sends a message out to his generals, and he says, this is what I want you to do. Take Uriah, put him at the very front of the worst part of the war, the front lines, and then withdraw, and leave him there on his own to die. And so they do. They bring him out to the front lines, then they all step back, and he's killed. What's really sad is that in order to do this, in order to make this happen and the strategy to take place, there were quite a few other men that were killed in this. So in an effort to cover up his own sin, he murders a guy and he loses other men as collateral damage just to cover up his own failure. This is the guy after God's own heart. How's that feel? Before David was anointed king, Samuel was told by God, I'm picking him specifically because of his heart. And it's really interesting that this is said because this is the only place in Scripture where someone is described as being someone after God's heart. And we don't really know why. That's not clear in Scripture. It could be because this is someone that God knew that they would follow after God's instructions. Most likely, though, we can see that it has something to do with the condition of his heart, something to do with his character. And so as we begin to look at this story, we're trying to figure out what is the character that he has that's so great. And so one of the things we do have available to us is we're going to look at David's diary to figure out who he really was. Not just the accounts of the things he did, but what was his heart like? And that's where we go to in the book of Psalms. And the Psalms are this great collection. There's beautiful poetry. There's stories of like um, love and war. Um, but basically what the Psalms is, it's some, a, lot, a lot of the songs we worship here on Sunday, these are Psalms. Um, these are, are like, it is basically a diary of David. It's what his heart was feeling at different points in his life. There's 150 psalms. Half of them are actually attributed to David. The other is not as, not as clear. But in those psalms, as we begin looking at them, we see patterns. Patterns that begin to help us identify who David was, who he was on the inside. And as we look at them, the first thing we notice is this. The psalms reveal his humanness. Man after God's heart, anointed to be king, great feats. But the truth was he was deeply human. The Psalms are honest. They're vulnerable. They're transparent. In the Psalms, there are Psalms of his anger, his deep anger, his disappointment, his heartbreak. Songs where he calls out for revenge against his enemies. Songs where he expresses his loneliness and his isolation, his failure, his sense of shame. 
Half of the psalms that he wrote were songs of lament or brokenness. And most often in the psalms, one of the questions you see consistently throughout the songs is, how long, O Lord? How long am I in this position? How long am I going to be stuck like this? How long am I going to be like, like hunted? How long am I going to be like screwing things up? How long, O Lord? David was really real. One of my favorite psalms, not a great one, but one of my favorite ones is Psalms 137 where he says he's so upset at his enemies and he prays and he says, oh, how happy it would be for the person who would take my enemies' babies and bash their heads against the rocks. Pretty brutal, right? I love that. Do <laughs> you want to know why? I feel that way sometimes. Yeah. In the darkest parts of my heart, I'll, heart, I'll feel that way. And David brought his honest, scariest, darkest places before God. He knew that was the place where he could be the most honest, the most vulnerable. And so he brought it before God. Psalms 25, 16, he says, look upon me. Like, have pity on me, for I am alone and I'm afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart. Bring me out of my distress. That is not a song that we're going to sing up here necessarily. It's not a song of, yippee, God is so great. But it's a song of, oh my, the pain in me is unbearable. First thing we notice is David is real. He doesn't like chit-chat either. The second thing we notice is that the Psalms display his repentant heart. David admitted when he was wrong, and he took responsibility for his mistakes. He had, even though he had really flawed decision-making skills, he had deep sense of integrity. There's one place in Scripture where he, when he was in hiding where he needed something for his men, and so he lied to a priest to have the priest go into this community and get what he needed and bring it back to the cave. And when he did, King Saul found out about it. And Saul was mad. So Saul had the priest killed. And then Saul had 85 of the priest's friends, other priest guys, killed. And then Saul slaughtered an entire village of innocent people. When David realized that his selfishness and his manipulation of the priest, the lying and deception that he used, had led to the deaths of so many people, he was devastated. He was so, he appalled, he prayed, he asked for forgiveness. He went and found the sole surviving person and brought him in and cared for him. David dealt with his failures with honesty. When the prophet Nathan came to him and said that he had found out about Bathsheba and Uriah, and he said, David, this is what you've done. And David realized, like when the light bulb finally came on and he realized what he was done, David penned the Psalm 51 where he began to like plead for God to forgive him for the choice that he made. And in Psalm 51, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. It's like I can't get away from it. It's always right here. Against you and you only have I sinned. And I have done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict justified when you judge. Then verse 10, he says, created me, created me a pure heart, oh God. Get rid of this nastiness inside of me that keeps searching out for things that please me. Created me a, a clean heart and renew a steadfast, a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. 
or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The third thing we see in the Psalms is that they reveal David's deep faith and trust in God. David had a life of a lot of uncertainty. Whether it was fighting battles, having assassination attempts on his life, making bad choices and like screwing people up and getting people killed and getting people pregnant. David had a life where he consistently messed things up and he felt like the whole world was chaotic at times. But he knew where stability came from. He knew where he could find his strength. He knew where to place his trust and his faith. And one of the Psalms, Psalms 46 reads this. As I read it, I want you to think if this sounds familiar with what's going on in the world today, in the world, but also in our own homes. He says, God is my refuge and strength. He's an ever-present help in time of need. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give away and the mountains fall into the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come. And see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on this earth, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. And he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire and he says, be still. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He knew where to turn. And that's the legacy of David. It wasn't his extraordinary feats. It wasn't his wild-eyed adventures. It wasn't that he rose from near obscurity to become one of the greatest leaders of all time. His legacy is a legacy that redemption runs deep in him. His entire life was a pattern of humanness and faithfulness, struggle and honesty, Sin and repentance, uncertainty and trusting. David left a legacy behind him of both shameful failure but deep devotion. David's legacy was one of corruption and generational disobedience, right alongside a legacy of consistent, faithful returning to his God. He knew where his help came from. That is who David was. And when he died, he passed all of this on to his next generation. His son Solomon inherited the kingdom of Israel with its wealth and its power and its glory. But he also inherited David's enemies. His proclivities, his temptations, his wandering eye and his lust. But he also inherited the knowledge that there was a God who had open arms. He also inherited an awareness of where he could go in time of trouble. So in this season, 
as we're doing legacy, this is what I ask of you. What is your legacy going to be? What is it that you have inherited? We've all inherited something. In our human nature, we take on the traits of those who've gone before us, and some of it is genetic. Neuroscience and biology teaches us that if repeated, patterns are repeated over time, that it begins to rewire our brains and change our DNA. So some of the things that you've experienced in your life are actually wired already inside of you. Epigenetics says it's there. doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it says there's a potential inside of you for certain things to come out. Other things occur because we, we inherit them because we've watched them in our families, and so we've learned them through experiences and exposure to things. Whatever it is, all of it impacts us in subtle yet easily recognizable ways. We inherit postures, facial expressions. I mean, if you look in the mirror and you see your parents, right? We inherit stupid jokes. We inherit hairlines, body shapes. We inherit insecurities and anxieties and fears. We inherit lack of trust. We inherit illness, habits. We can inherit pride and self-reliance. We inherit racism and bigotry. We inherit anger, abuse, violence. We can inherit isolation and hiding. We inherit lust, addictions, poverty, brokenness, and we definitely inherit shame because we're David. We're full of promise and full of humanity. We are flawed. We're wounded. We have been overlooked. We can feel used, set up. We can have felt hunted. We certainly experience the shame that we hear him speak of in the Psalms. And when we feel the weight of the inheritance that we've been given, we can often feel as though we are too much or not enough. We're too marred by darkness. We're too insignificant. Maybe we're too late. We have a choice then of what we will do with this, just like David. We can wallow in what we have experienced, what's been handed to us, or we can choose to return to the place where we know our strength comes from and realign our story and rewrite who we are. We can choose to return and get honest. And when we get honest, we find a place of repentance that's offered to us and a grace that overwhelms us, it rolls over us. And that's where we begin to find our core source of strength. And as the band will come, I want to tell you that whatever we choose today not just impacts us, but it defines the legacy that comes after us. The New Testament says that no man lives or dies unto himself. This life is not about you. Shocker, right? It's really not. We are one bit, we're one piece in it, and our life, nine times out of ten, what's happening for us is about what comes after us. 
The New Testament also says that while we've been handed these things, we have a choice to change our story. We have a choice to do something different, to recreate the storyline and go a new way, to create a new trajectory for those of us who have a life ahead. The scripture also says that we can take what David did and we, as we return to God, we can have blessings poured out on our lives and we can store up those blessings for us and for those who come after us. Psalms 103, 17 says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. Luke 1, 10 says, his mercy, it extends to those who fear him. And that's not those who are scared because he's such a crazy, angry God. That's those who recognize his, his weight and his importance, his value. To those who recognize who he is, he extends mercy to them for generation to generation to generation. In 2 Timothy, I love the story. In 2 Timothy 1, it's the story of a single mom. We don't know what happened to the dad. All we know is that this is a woman raising Timothy. And Timothy is a great guy, and he's doing good things in the kingdom of God. And Paul comes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, you have the hand of God on your life. And you are the youngest apostle, and you're going to write books that are going to change this world. But really, Timothy, it's not about you. It's because of your mama and your grandmama's prayers. You are carrying on the blessings of those who've gone before you. And some of you are fighting a battle that you did not start. You didn't ask for the things that were handed to you. You didn't ask for this inheritance. But it could end with you. When we do not let God transform in us, we'll be transferred through us. So what is it that you want to pass on? Just as trauma can be passed through generations, so can healing and the power and the goodness and grace of God. Just as we can pass on addiction, we can pass on sobriety. Just as we can pass on the curse of sin, we can pass on the blessings of redemption. Just as we can pass on brokenness, we can pass on holiness and healing. Well, that's not my story. <laughs> I didn't inherit those kind of blessings. You don't know what kind of life I grew up in. You haven't seen my family. Well, it wasn't David's story either. He had a choice. We don't know where I grew up. You don't know what it was like for me. I don't. But I do know that you have a choice to say, all these things have been weighing me down. All these things have been burdening me. It ends here. I'm going a different direction. I want a different life for those who come behind me. This is the beauty that I see in David's legacy. David consistently kept returning to God. Screwed up? Yeah, really screwed up. Not necessarily a role model in a lot of ways, right? We can find other options. But even when he screwed it up, he kept coming back to God. And when he did, the relationship he built with God was so deep and so rich and so intimate. It, he really was a man who sought after God's heart and God poured out blessings and blessings and blessings on him. So much so that the blessings God poured out on David's life, his life couldn't contain it. And so they poured out and they spilled out and they flowed over into generations beyond him. I'm gonna show you something super cool. 11 years after David died, his son finally is building the temple. 
And when he begins to dedicate the temple, his son Solomon prays this prayer. He said, Lord God, remember the great love promised to David, your servant. He said, God, I know that I'm not perfect, but I did this for my dad. Remember your relationship with my dad. And the scripture says that when he said those words, something happens in God's spirit and the Holy Spirit moves into that temple so thick. It was like a cloud. They couldn't even see what was going on so much that the priest could not even stand up. God's presence was so anointed. He said, my, David, I loved David. David was a man after my heart and God surrounds that space with him. 11 years after David died. 23 years after he died, his son Solomon, he marries, the scripture calls her strange women. I, I'm not sure what that is. But strange women who are practicing the occult and they're, they're doing worship with Egyptian gods. And so the Lord comes to Solomon and he says, Since this is your attitude, you have not kept, kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded to you. And I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. But watch this. 23 years after David's death. But he says, nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I won't do it in your lifetime. Even though you deserve things that you're not getting right now, I'm not going to take away from you the blessings that I gave to your dad because of your dad. Because of the relationship I have with your dad, I'm going to watch over you. That's pretty cool. 57 years after David's death, Abadiah is reigning as the king and he is a bad dude and he is far from God. And the scripture reads that he committed sins um, of all the sins of his father before him and his, son, his heart was not fully devoted to God. And the scripture says in 1 Kings 15, 4, he says, Nevertheless, God comes to him and he says, For David's sake, the Lord God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son. Basically what God is saying is, you don't deserve this. And I could pull the rug out from underneath you and destroy everything that you fought for. But because of your great, great granddaddy, because he was a man after my heart, I'm gonna watch over you. I'm gonna pour blessings over you because of what your great, great granddaddy did. Over and over and over again for generations, David's faithfulness was honored because of his relationship with God. 305 years after his death, David's great, 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 great grandson, King Hezekiah, was on the throne. And the Assyrian army had surrounded them and were about to wipe them out. And the Lord says to him, Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. 305 years after his death, God is still honoring his ancestors, his descendants, because of his faithfulness. So what is the story that our lives will tell? What is it that we're going to pass on? One of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, she said, what is it? Tell me, what is it that you will do with this one wild and precious life? And I suggest we create a legacy, not a vacancy. 
May we have the courage to face down the weights that have held us and invite God to transform our lives so that we can pass on blessings to those who come after us. So today I'd like to pray with you. We're going to do something a little different. I want you to stand. Stretch. No, you didn't get your coffee. But this is why I want you to stand. Because God is offering you a chance to do something different. God is saying to you, I'm offering to rewrite your story and the story of those who come after you, if that's what you want. So whatever it is that's been holding you back, whatever feels, if you feel has made you captive, this is your time to get real with God. Offer it to him. And let him rewrite the legacy of your life. So as we pray, if that's what you want, I want you to do something different. If you typically stand like this, raise your hands. If you typically stand right here, take a step to the right. Okay? If you typically are quiet, speak out a little bit. Whatever you got to do. If you got to stretch, if that feels good, do whatever you need to do. And the reason is this. It begins with a step. It begins with taking the willingness of Jesus to do something different. Otherwise, we're going to stay in the same posture, the same place we've always been. So do something. If you want your life to shift, if you want your legacy to change, do something in this moment to let God know, I'm serious about this. I'm serious about this. So Lord, I thank you for this group of people. And God, I know that you have called each one of them individually into a life that is available to them. And some of us are just completely oblivious because we can't imagine what it is that you offer. And so God, I pray that you will give us the courage to first show up with our humanness to you. With our angers and our fears and our disappointments and confusions, God, I pray that you will just embrace us in the middle of our mess and you'll meet us there. And God, as we become real with you, we know we are welcomed by you and that your grace flows so deep and so rich and so thick over our lives. We ask you to forgive us of the things that we've done things we've done intentionally, things that are unintentional. God, you begin to cleanse us. Realign us with who you called us to be and what you offered us. Forgive us. Because God, in the middle of our uncertainty, we know that you, you are the only one who knows the way. In the middle of the dark, you can turn on the light. In the middle of the fog, you can breathe clarity. So God, we pray that you will do that for each one of us and that you will transform our lives and then the lives of those who come after us. I pray blessings and blessings and blessings on this group. Blessings that go beyond, beyond what we can see. And that our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren and those who are so far off will know that there was a time when anger stopped in the family, when depression stopped in the family, when violence stopped in the family, when abuse stopped in the family, and it was because of one who got a hold of their God. I thank you for your promise. I thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Hey, I just want to say thank you again for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you want to learn more about Celebration Church, I'd encourage you to go to our website, www.thecelebration.church, to find out more. We love you guys, and let's continue to love God, love people, and change the world.